Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerdette Book Club. We are back after taking the summer off, and I am very excited to tell you that our September book club pick is Gabrielle Zevin's novel, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. It tracks the friendship of Sam and Sadie, who first meet each other as kids in Los Angeles and end up starting a video game company together. The book follows the ups and downs of their friendship and their company. That is all I am going to say for now, since this is a spoiler-free episode. Gabrielle is here with me now. Gabrielle, hello. Thank you for having me, nerdette. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> are you the official? Are you the official nerdette? I mean, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I'll take it. Right. I mean, I don't have like a tattoo or anything, but yeah. or a crown. <laughs> no crown either. I mean, there is a tote bag. It's kind of fun. <laughs> so, so people don't like greet you as like uh, senior nerdette or something like that. <laughs> no, usually Greta's fine. <laughs> okay, Greta, we'll go with that. <laughs> okay, cool. So. This is one of those books that's like about video games, but also not at all about video games, which I think is just fascinating for a number of reasons. I have a lot of questions about it. But first, I assume you yourself are a gamer. I am a gamer, but I think not in the way people think of gamers. Mm. You know, I think we have really limited ideas of what gamers are. It's like some like, you know, 14 year old boy playing, you know. Fortnite or something like that. Yes, but, in a basement. But for me, I mean, I just realized that I had played like 30 years of video games without ever actually identifying myself as a gamer mm. in any way. My dad was a computer programmer and the first games I ever played were ones that came like on a computer he brought home from work. And and I think there are a lot of people that don't call themselves gamers that actually are in the same situation where they're like, but I put in thousands of hours mm. <laughs> into video games, you know? So I would say that describes me, you know? Interesting. Is that one where, like, do you think more people should identify as gamers just to kind of help shape, like, shift the definition of what a gamer looks like? I mean, I think so. It's weird. I think there's a lot of uh, sexism and sort of there's a lot of gendered language around sort of video games. Well, and misogyny among and misogyny and all of it, you know, I think it's become kind of a a sphere that we think of as male. But in fact, there are plenty of women participating in video games. Statistically, I think it's even higher. And it's even kind of, you know, there are um, games that are, you know, casual games that are, I think, typically what we think of as the games that like women or moms or even older women play and, you know, they're routinely called crap, (laughs) you Mm. know, they're routinely like known to be like the worst of video games. And so there are ways in which I think there are parallels to the, you know, to television, to books and and to how we think about the material that women consume being somewhat, you know, less than. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, books too, right? Like I think about chiclet and or romance novels, you know. Or even the category women's fiction, you know, like I didn't even know that was a category until I published my first novel. And then all of a sudden, you know, people are like, that's women's fiction. I'm like, what does that mean? Mm. Other than like a person who is a woman, whatever that means, wrote it, you know, um, it it seems like, you know, obviously no men enter into the category men's fiction upon, you know. (laughs) 
upon publishing their first novels, you know, I mean, it's very, it's very strange, I think. And, you know, so there's, I think there's a lot of that. There's a healthy amount of that in the way people think about games as well. You know, it, it just as a side point, another thing that I notice is that there are people that will say like, I never game at all, but I'm like, but if you're using Instagram or if you're using any mm. kind of social media network, you are in a game, Ooh. you know, it has like a, a, a currency based on likes, you know, and it's meant to kind of prolong your engagement in it. And I, the levels aren't always obvious, but in fact, it is, it is a game. You oh know, my God, you just kind of blew my mind because, yeah, I do not think of myself as a gamer at all. But of course, I'm on all that stuff. And I mean, I will say I have played like, I don't know even how many days of Wordle now, you know, <laughs> Right. Everybody, I think, you know, and the funny thing about that is it's natural for humans to want to play, you know, mm -hmm. and there, there's, there are ways in which we're told that, hey, you're an adult, stop playing. But in fact, play is quite healthy, yeah. you know, and, and almost everybody plays at something, whether that's Wordle, crossword puzzles, you know, yeah. or Instagram, you know, you're, most people are engaged in some kind of play, hmm. you know. That's gorgeous. So, you know, I mean, I love your argument that everybody's a gamer to a certain extent, kind of like thinking about expanding out definitions. But I, one thing that I thought your book did really beautifully was kind of balance out like the making it exciting for people who do genuinely love video games and who do maybe identify as gamers and still like figuring out how to make it interesting for people who don't necessarily, you know, even know much about them. Right. You know, it's interesting to me. I think that somebody coming to the book that knows nothing about it, if they could know one thing about it, mm. it was it is that, you know, video games really are another form of storytelling. Yes. You know, they yes. are essentially different, but in terms of the ways that people use stories to organize their experiences and maybe, you know, apply lessons to their lives, I think games act in a very similar way mm -hmm. to the way novels act, you For know. Sure. And and so that was something I was always mindful of, you know, obviously my experience is as a novelist. And so, so much of the book is really about what it is to have a long career in the arts as mm -hmm. much as it is about, you know, playing video games. But, you know, for me, it was uh, a, a thing I did for like, like I was saying, 30-ish years without ever identifying as a gamer or even thinking that was something interesting about me. And so really uh, when I started to delve into the history of video games, video games of storytelling, um, you know, I found it to be an endlessly interesting subject. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating because to a certain extent, I mean, I think you could argue, you know, kind of to your point, like this is a story about friendship and creativity. It could be about any industry. It could take place in any place, really. Right. I mean, I think the situations I hope seem very particular to video games. Mm -hmm. Although I, I think weirdly, if you think about video games, I, if you kind of zoom out from the subject really where they sit is at the intersection of art and technology and i'd argue that's where almost all of us sit right now <laughs> you know <laughs> this strange place like where you know you are yeah. sort of between these two things and so i think what was interesting to me was that about games the fact that you know they are both of these things like tech itself sometimes starts to seem gross to me you know mm, yeah but, and yet it is part of all of our lives we are essentially changed from its presence in good ways and bad ways and neutral ways but just changed you know and so for me it was a, a subject that allowed me to to think about like the positive things about tech and the possibilities for it yeah that's really cool so obviously you're writing a book that involves these characters who are coming up with video games, which meant you got to invent a bunch of very different video games. I thought it was really fascinating, partly because, you know, this book spans a number of decades. So it the games change as the tech develops, of course. 
Yeah. But also as these characters grow and learn and figure out their own talents, I I just can't fathom how much fun it must have been for you to come up with all of them. You know, it was fun, but it's funny. I don't really experience uh, writing as fun. I experience it. Fair, fair, fair. (laughs) I experience it as like intensely engaging. I feel like kind of, you know, Michael Jordan in the zone when it's really going well, like there's nothing else I'd rather be doing, but do I experience it as fun? No, I just, I not necessarily, you know, but. <laughs> okay. I appreciate but that, that correction. <laughs> but that said, <laughs> but that said, I, I felt really, uh, you know, to me, it was interesting to think about how we have very few ways that we can see uh, the way tech has changed over the last 30 years. Yeah. Um, but video games are one of them, you know, so totally. like we know again that, you know, you know, for instance, that nobody knows how to get places anymore, but we don't really have a visual like, you know, way to see the fact that everybody relies on maps. But mm. if you look at video games, you could actually see such a clear progression from games like Pong that are literally two lines and two dots yeah. to games like The Last of Us that look like movies, basically, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. so to me, it was great to just have this constant visual reference for the ways in which tech has changed and evolved in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about Emily Blaster? Because it exists in the world. And that's amazing and awesome. It exists, you know. Um, yeah. So Emily Blaster is a game that it's the, one of the first games that Sadie Green comes up with in the book. It's a game that she makes for class. And so it needed to be something that a enterprising student could, you know, make with relatively few resources and on relatively brief time. And so my publisher decided that they would make Emily Blaster. Um, the game involves shooting the poetry of Emily Dickinson, which I found, uh, you know, a little subversive, a little fun. <laughs> Yeah. And it's weird. Like there's a whole history, like at the first, one of these first game jams historically, like they made games around Emily Dickinson, which I didn't know at the oh, time, wow. you know, I didn't know that either. but, but I, I do think, um, you know, that when I look at sort of the poetry of Emily Dickinson, um, I see ways in which what I wanted to show was how all of these different things blend together. You know, like we think of literature over here and, mm-hmm. you know, computers over here, but and shooter games over there, shooter games over there. But in fact, you know, and yeah, you know, just to think about shooter games, I don't like them either. You know, right. I think that they are like, it's the basis. It's the saddest thing really that, you know, we're like, what can we do with the game? Well, what we really enjoy is shooting at stuff it makes yeah. me kind of depressed and sad. And it's a point that a character makes, you know, obviously Emily Dickinson runs through the book. Um, the epigraph from the book is uh, that love is all there is, is all we know of love. It is enough. The freight should be proportioned to the mm, groove, yes. which I always tell people is basically the whole book in four sentences, mm. it's, uh, you know, because what it starts with is a riddle about love, which she then solves with a machine based metaphor, you know, <laughs> so so beautiful. Can we talk a little about the title? Because I find it fascinating, but also have found myself uh, shortening it to tomorrow, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> Tomorrow X3, TX3. Like, it's so funny when I was coming up with the title, I like, don't think I was aware of how long it was. But now anytime I see it printed anywhere, I'm like, wow, that's always on like the next line. It's a lot of characters once you say something three times, you know, (laughs) plus the commas, you know, which I'm glad we kept. Yep. We had a discussion about whether we would keep the commas, like if search would acknowledge that the commas were there, if it would mess it up. But, but yes, on the subject of the title, um, you know, I like to, when I start my a book that I'm writing, have a title at the beginning. And that was not the case for this one. I don't think I had this title till I was probably 40% of the way through around huh. there. And, you know, for me, the title comes from 
obviously one of the bleakest speeches in all of Shakespeare. It's probably one of the first bits of Shakespeare I ever committed to memory as a kid. Um, and, you know, obviously the character who invokes it in my novel, he finds great hope in it, which is strange. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that every day we're alive is a chance to start again. And he also conveniently for me finds a metaphor for video games with their infinite lives and infinite chances at redemption. Mm. But I always feel like I should add when he's making this argument, he's actually trying to sell people on the idea that they should name their company Tomorrow Games, you know, so it's it's questionable <laughs> whether Marx truly believes this interpretation either, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. There's a really cool moment in the book. You know, I found myself flagging a number of pages just because of the different interactions and how much I loved them and, and how how deeply felt all of these characters come to be throughout the course of this novel. Um, but there's a really great conversation that happens at one point after Sadie, who you mentioned, makes this game that just does not go well. And she's talking to a character who we'll call a mentor, but it's definitely a lot more complicated than that. And he says something like, you you know, this is when you get to take a pause. You can sort of like withdraw. You can gather yourself <laughs> and you can fail better next time. And it's just such a gorgeous sentiment. I loved it so much. Yeah, to me, that is the grand subject of the book. Um, it's love, art, video games, and time and mm. failure, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and when I told my agent that, you know, what did I think the book was about? I said, well, I think it's really about failure. And he said, can we please say it's about something else? You know? <laughs> but the thing about having a long career in the arts is that you realize that every time you try again is a is a chance to fail again. And I've Mm. certainly been Sadie. I've been somebody who thought like, I have arrived, I will never fail again. But if you keep making work, you will continue to to fail. And that's part of the bargain, you know? And I actually don't mind that (laughs) these days. And it is Sadie's mentor. We'll put that, I guess, in quotes. Yeah, well, and, let's use some heavy quotes there. I mean, he gives he, he some is, good advice. He is a good mentor. And, I, and, and that was something yeah. I wanted to write about, too. The yeah, fact that a person that can be complicated in your life can actually be a good teacher while being, uh, it, it's an incredibly fraught relationship. Yes, fraught's you know? a great word for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a really interesting moment when we see an interview with Sam and he, you know, he does it about a game that he made decades ago at this point. And the interviewer asks him about cultural appropriation. And Sam, he gets a little defensive and he says, like, this is a phrase that didn't exist in the 90s. Right. Um, and I thought it was a really interesting moment for a number of reasons. It made me wonder, you know, I mean, you spoke about your own long career at this point. Like, <laughs> is is that something that you have found yourself reckoning with, too, as just, you know, a person who has been an artist and maybe failed in a variety of ways over the past 20 years? Yeah, I mean, to speak of it generally, yeah. um, to have a long career in the arts is to live with ghost versions of yourself, Oof. you know. And so the person who wrote, you know, books like my first novel was published 17 years ago, written probably like 19 years ago. And, you know, so to, to, that person does not feel and think the same way I do mm-hmm. now. Um, and so there are things, nothing as obvious as what happens to Sam, but there are certainly things in my book that do not necessarily reconcile with the human being I am today. And I feel that that um, is an empathy that should be extended probably to many situations, mm. you know, but yeah, when Sam Sadie, like make Ichigo, they aren't really, they, you know, obviously. Obviously, they reference uh, hoax size, uh, 36 views of Mount Fuji, and they're not really thinking about the fact that um, this is not <laughs> that this is Japanese and they are not Japanese. You know, they because, again, they really do, they really have not encountered the word appropriation in 1994, not in a way that mattered, you know. And so 
And so I thought that this was something I wanted to talk about. When you write, again, this is a book about people with a long career in the arts. And so I, I wanted to have them grapple with with these things as well. It's funny to hear you talk about it because it seems like so much of this book turns out to be sort of like you wrestling with things that are like kind of huge bummers, but end up being gorgeous <laughs> at the same time. You know what I mean? Um, yes, I do know what you mean. So it's my 10th novel. I don't think it's a book I could have written when I had only written one, you know, and I think so much of publishing is geared up around like the great debut. Um, when I debuted, I'm not sure it was a great novel. It was the best novel I could write at the time. But the thing about having a longer career in the arts is you do actually get better from having done it. If you pay attention and keep your wits about you and not everybody is fully formed upon their arrival, you know, as an author, even as a published author, you know, and that's something I was aware of. And so I think all my books to an extent, I I mean, I used to joke and say they were a cheap form of therapy, you know? (laughs) Is that cheap? I mean, that's a lot of work. (laughs) It's right. And then I'm like, how cheap is it? You know, so I worked on this book probably about five years. I think it's the the longest I've spent on a book, you know, in in Mm. that range. And And for me, just really, uh, I think when I started out as a writer, sometimes I did not allow myself to go deep enough, you know, into material. I did not like engage as fully as I could have, Mm. you know. And so just really pushing into like the places, things that make me uncomfortable, just really allowing myself, I guess, to go there in that term, you know, was, was something that was really useful in writing this book. More with Gabrielle Zevin on tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow in just a minute. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. One thing that I really loved about this book is that as Sam and Sadie release each game, the narrative structure of the book shifts in some cases it's is in some cases it's pretty slight in others it's significant yeah um but i at what point in the process of writing this book did you realize you wanted that to be a part of how the story is told um i think really early mm-hmm. like well, some of the first notes i have on it are that the games that the characters make will mirror their lives you mm-hmm. know and will push the structure in certain ways and so i have these notes really early on um and but you make a lot of notes early on that you don't ever think about again mm-hmm. <laughs> after making them but in that case it actually is kind of what the book ends up doing something that has fascinated me is the fact that the first generation of people to play video games as children uh, were born in the late 1970s and mm-hmm. early 80s. People call them the Oregon Trail generation, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and something that interested me about that was how does your experience of life change um, because of being exposed to video game storytelling, mm-hmm. you know, and so that was something I wanted to explore, you know, particularly, uh, and I and I think that affected the structure all the way through. Oh, God, it's fascinating. I may before have said it seemed like it would have been really fun to write, but it sounds very stimulating to write. Let's put it that way. <laughs> 
I don't think I've ever felt more engaged when I was writing. Interesting. A novel. Like, I could see that. I just felt like it was weird. It was a hard novel to write. I quit writing it several times, but then when the pandemic started, I went back to it. I had been researching it during the years before it from like basically tw- the end of 2017 to 2020. And when 2020 hit, I felt like almost, you know, that sound when like all sound drops out from something in oh that, and when you're watching a movie, yes. like I was like, you know, like you're in a vacuum state and you're just sitting in head. And anyway, that was this like great redemptive quiet for me in a certain way, obviously a terrible time in terms of so many of things, but that sort of particular quiet was like the time when I had written, you know, when I hadn't written any novels, when I didn't hear any voices except that, which I wanted to do. So I remember like during this time, you know, as I really uh, dug into this, just feeling like I needed very little sleep. Like I just wanted to get up and work on this and uh, see where these characters were going to go. Is it fair to say that your brain, like, did it almost feel like making, like participating in a puzzle or something like that? It did, but it always feels like that. I mean, that's the thing about writing novels. Like you're always solving this kind of like big puzzle, you know? And so there are ways in which novel writing is totally like playing a video game. You go to it every single day and you kind of try to solve it and you kind of keep at it, keep at it, keep Mm. at it, keep at it. And you either, you know, winning is more ambiguous, I think, in a a novel, but, you know. (laughs) Fair point. But the process, the process is the same, you know, the process (laughs) is kind of the same in that way. Um, Like it did feel like something for me to solve insofar as I was aware at the times in which I quit writing it that I had not solved it yet, Mm. you know. Interesting. So there's almost like a mystery element to this book, too, because you find out pretty early on that the company becomes successful, but also that these two people who started the company become pretty alienated from themselves. And I don't know, there's a certain narrative and inevitability to that that I found really satisfying as a reader. Like speaking of puzzles, I guess it just really worked for my brain in terms of like knowing what's going to happen, but having no idea how or why, but and or what would happen after that. Right. Was that always part of the plan, too? You know, I I don't know. Mm, Fair enough. (laughs) I don't know. You know, I, I don't experience it that way. Like for me, I find that I don't it's very rare that a book ever surprises me when a book is based just around a premise because Mm. premises kind of, I've like read so much and thought about storytelling so much that there is a sort of like inevitability, I think, to stories that are set up around a very particular premise. This Mm. isn't really a premise-based novel. This is just about people through time. We hope things will work out for these people. We know that some things will not. (laughs) You know? No, that's true. That's very true. Maybe mysterious isn't quite the right word. I just found it really... You know, it's like a thing that you can keep in the back of your mind as you're reading and you kind of like plant seeds throughout, too, that just makes it exciting to read. You know, I mean, I do like the idea of mysterious. And I think in the end, like I think the mystery, if there is one Mm -hmm. in this story, is why really intelligent people cannot just figure their lives out. (laughs) And this is a mystery I grapple with, like, (laughs) you know, quite often, you know, why when I'm quite smart, am I not able to just be more functional as a human? Why Mm. can't I say like the things I know people need to hear? And, um, and, you know, and and all of the things like, I just think, you know, this is the impossible puzzle. There are a couple puzzles in the book for them. You know, one of them is what, what do you do when the most important person in your life isn't any of the usual suspects? It's not like your wife and it's not your kids. What if it really is your colleague and your friend, you know? And so I think, you know, Sadie and Sam's relationship itself 
you know, poses an impossible puzzle for them, you know? Yeah, I think that speaks to another really interesting theme in this book, which is just how complicated friendship can be. Yeah. And, you know, how painful the end of a friendship can be, too. I mean, I think we talk a lot about, like, the end of a romantic relationship and, you know, those breakups. But, like, friend breakups can be devastating. Right. And I think they're particularly devastating because we don't really value those relationships. Mm, not really. And and that's, be, you know, I, there was a review of the book that I didn't end up liking, um, but that had a really good point in it because sometimes <laughs> even a review you don't like can have a good point in it. And, you know, he actually compared uh, the levels of friendship to playing a video game insofar as like friendship is not a productive kind of uh, thing. You know, it doesn't, it's, it's it just exists for itself, huh. you know, and I, I, I think that's an interesting point you know the idea that um you know we have our friendships don't have obvious signposts that say that they are important or meaningful right. there isn't like a big you know sam and sadie don't ever have a wedding right you know, that or says even moving you, in together yeah they never have any of that they just kind of have this thing mm. that exists in a very particular and special way which is a melding of their two minds but it doesn't exist in any other way except between them and society certainly doesn't say it exists in any other way right you know um and, you know, you could say it exists in a professional sphere, but even in that sphere, it's not exactly what is between them. And so far as people are always trying to say the work is more Sam's than Sadie's and mm, things like that, yeah. you know, so there's, so there is no way in which they kind of can commemorate the importance of this relationship um, in, you know, to, to externally validate it in some way. I think it also speaks so intensely to the idea of how, how easy it can be to kind of make up narratives about yourself and what other people think of you that can be, right. you know, completely off base, but seem so real. Yeah, no, I think that's completely true. <laughs> so much for me over the years has been realizing that when I was writing a character, that it was very possible for two things to exist in the head of a character at the same time. Mm. I think we're I think we're used to sort of characters that present in a more straightforward way. But a, a, a small breakthrough for me was just realizing how often that there is a conflict between what a character does, what a character thinks, what a character says, you know. And so that is so much, I think, Sam and Sadie, yeah. you know, Sam, there are times when, you know, he's kind of incapable of saying like, I love you to Sadie in a right. way, you know, yeah. for most of the book. And so, you know, this is, and she is somebody who needs to hear this from him. And he's like, this just isn't how he is wired. He would rather make like an elaborate, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we won't say the spoiler, but he would rather do like make an elaborate gesture. Work really just, hard for like, hours. Like, <laughs> Right, then to just pick up a phone and say, I love you and I really hope you're okay. Oh my gosh, Gabrielle, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, now that you've heard that interview, I hope you're ready to read this book. It is fabulous. I think you're going to like it a lot. If you've already read it, we would love to hear what you think. You can send over your thoughts in the form of a voice memo. Your phone has a voice memos app. You can just record it there and then email that file to nerdappodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to all of you who have already done that. We would love to hear from you too. And then we will be back with our panel discussion with listener comments in the last Tuesday of this month. And of course, we will see you every Friday with normal episodes until then. 
The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. Our newsletter is built by Maggie Civit, and our executive producer is Brendan Banizak. We will see you on Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.